uh, and get started. There may be a few more that are coming in. Uh, I saw some cars pulling up, but uh, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into the world of the minor prophet. Father, we are thankful uh, for tonight, for this new season that is before us. Uh, Father, when we can open your word, when we can uh, plow through it, when we can glide through it, when we can run through it, Father, I thank you for your word that it is truth. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we walk and talk with the minor prophets, that we will hear your voice and that we will hear your truth. Uh, Lead us tonight and uh, give us uh, ears to hear. A mind to understand and a heart to go out and live it. Uh, and we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the Minor Prophets. How many of you have studied the Minor Prophets before in class? Don't remember. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. It is the, the Minor Prophets are the tail end of the Old Testament. Um, how many know how many Minor Prophets are there? Some are saying 12, some are saying 6. There are 12. 12 minor prophets. We're not going to cover them all, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you which ones we're going to cover here in just a little bit. But there are three of them that we have nine weeks uh, between now and Thanksgiving and uh, when we will be meeting. And so uh, we're going to cover nine of the minor prophets. Um, actually, we have eight weeks. We're covering two of them tonight. So... Uh, <clears throat> but let's look, look through some, some definitions uh, as we're thinking about prophets, as we're thinking about the minor prophets. and the, uh, Because the minor prophets really are, as I was telling, I was talking to Bill Opperman, our youth pastor, and I said, uh, we're ready to dive into the minor prophets. I said, I, I'm hoping that we can make them exciting. And uh, he said, oh, he, he loves the minor prophets, that he's a history buff, and this really is uh, a big chunk of history uh, of Israel and uh, and Judah. So as we're as we're going through, we want to we want to understand the context in which it was lived out, but we also want to s- understand that there's a message today as well for us, and that's why we've entitled it "Talking with the Minor Prophets" because we want to look at it as if they were alive today, as if they were coming today. What would their message be? Uh, to us. And uh, so we got to get some definitions just I think that will be helpful. The first one is that of prophet. Uh, The prophet, the main function of the prophet was to communicate to Israel the messages from God. Uh, Many times throughout the prophets, we talk about uh, it's really the second half, everything from uh, after Psalms and and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, you, you get into the prophets. Isaiah all the way to Malachi is, is the section of prophets. And what you hear a lot or what you read a lot in those sections is a little phrase that says, the Lord says. Or if you have the King James, thus saith the Lord. Um, <clears throat> and that's what the prophet was. The prophet would come down to the people or come to the people and he would say, the Lord says, and then he would speak on behalf of God. A lot of times when we think of prophet, we think that they only spoke future. They spoke about what was going to happen. Well, that, while that was part of it, they also spoke about right here, right now, do this. This is what the Lord is saying. And so there's a lot of truth uh, throughout these books that we're going to be looking at. Um, Exodus chapter 4, verse 16, kind of gives us a little idea of, of, the, of what a prophet is. Uh, as we look at Moses and Aaron and how they interacted with God, uh, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Anybody know why? This is when he said, I can't speak. I can't do it. He, God had called him to go and be his voice, uh, basically asked Moses to be a prophet, to be the voice of God to the people to go to Pharaoh and lead his people out. And Moses said, I can't do it. And it says, when the Lord's anger burned against Moses, as he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, 
and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. In Exodus chapter 7, then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. So the prophet was the one who would speak. It was as if he were the mouth of God. Um, and so the prophets, uh, depending on the spiritual uh, climate of Israel and of Judah, uh, really, the prophets either carried a lot of sway or they were persecuted, beat up, and killed, uh, depending on what they, the people wanted to hear. If they truly wanted to follow after God, truly wanted to hear God, they would obey the prophet. If they were living away from God, they usually ridiculed, beat up, killed, uh, drove the prophet out. <clears throat> Second Peter chapter 1 says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Okay, this is Peter talking about the Old Testament. And he says, we have all of these prophetic writings uh, that they are completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. The prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So even in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit carried the prophets along, uh, giving, giving them the words to say so that they could say, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord says. So. To a certain extent, yes. You could say that they spoke where in the New Testament we have the Scripture. We, have, we today have the, the Word. Um, they were the spoken word. We now today have the written word. So that's a, that's a prophet. We want to understand that was his role. His role was speaking on behalf of God to the people. We also have priest. That's the second word we have to understand. <clears throat> now the priest was different than the prophet in that they dealt with the law of God. And the main function of the priest was twofold. One, they were the main teachers of the law. Okay. Uh, they declared the law they, they, and interpreted it for the people. So they would speak the law to the people, teach the law, uh, interpret the law. Um, and they were then to give application on how to live out the law of God. So who was the very first priest? Aaron, the Levite. Uh, oddly enough, he also acted as Moses, as a prophet for Moses who was speaking on behalf of God. Aaron and the Levites were the priests. Uh, so all of the priests came from the Levites. <coughs> they all had the same lineage. So Levi um, from Moses or from uh, Jacob, that, that son, they, they all came from Levi. So all of the priests were Levites. Prophets could come from any tribe. Uh, there was no set tribe, but all of the priests were from one tribe, um, and they were the teachers of the law. Now, this actually got them in trouble as well, because as we know in the New Testament, the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and teachers of the law, those that group of people, they started adding to the law. In order to interpret it and teach it, they started adding to it. So they went beyond the law that God had given Moses, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, those books, and they added over 600 man-made laws on how to live out God's law. Um, and really, it got them, got them in trouble because they went beyond what God was, was requiring of them. So they're the main teachers of the law. They were also the ones to perform all the sacrifice and feasts. So all of the, the holy days, all of the feasts, all of the sacrifices, as you read through Leviticus, um, it was the priest that carried those out. No one else was allowed to do that. No one else could sacrifice uh, at the temple, only the priests. <clears throat> and so when we look at the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament is referred to as the law and the prophets. When they refer to the Old Testament, they talk about the book of Moses, which is the first five books, and then they talk about the law and the prophets. And so uh, a lot of what we have written in the Old Testament came from prophets and priests. That's Those are the ones who wrote it. There's a third group that we need to understand, and those are the judges. 
these ruled Israel in more of a hybrid of prophet and king. Uh, this is, they, they ruled before there were kings. Um, Judges chapter 2. Well, actually, let's, I'm going to read Judges 2. verse 6 to 19 to give us kind of an idea of what a judge a judge's role was judges chapter 2 verse 6 says after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites they went to take possession of the land each to his own inheritance the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel Joshua son of Nun the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. After the whole generation, after that whole generation had been gathered by their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with the minor prophets, but that is a huge verse we have to understand. Let me go back and read it again. After that whole generation, the whole generation of Joshua, the Joshua's generation who had gone in, conquered, overthrown Canaan, followed the Lord, they had taken the land that God had promised them. Israel was now established as a nation in the land that God had promised them. After, <clears throat> after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up. I never should have eaten that Nutri-Grain bar. Another generation grew up. So the next generation behind them knew neither of the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's failure of the first generation. Joshua's generation did not pass it on. Joshua's, Joshua's generation, whether they got caught up, caught up in what they were doing, they failed to pass it on to the generation coming up behind them. And so one of our lessons tonight, even though it's not from one of the minor prophets, is we've got to make sure we're passing it on to the generation behind us uh, or we will be in trouble. Then the Israelites, because that generation did not know the Lord or what he had done for Israel, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, which were the local gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because he, they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to, to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's command. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. So Israel, who before was led by Joshua, led by Moses, led by Joshua, conquered the land, went in, settled the land, forgot about who God was. That generation that came up after Joshua did not know God, did not understand who God was. Uh, did not follow God, got sucked into following all of the, the local gods, Baal and the Ashtoreths. And <clears throat> God then took his hands off. He no longer protected them. And so anytime that these raiders would come in and plunder a city or whatever, God just watched and allowed it to happen as judgment upon them, as a way for them to turn back to him. And then... At, at some point, he brought in judges to rule. And these judges would go in, and they followed God, and they, they worshiped God, and they would go in and, and do as God had directed them and save the people. And then what would happen, though, is that they would quit following the judge. And so there was just a cycle of the judge going in, ruling. And so you can read throughout the book of Judges 
all of the many judges that, that ruled uh, in that time that, that would br- try to bring the, the nation of Israel back to God. And they would follow for a while and then they would fall away. And they would follow for a while and then they would fall away. And so these judges kind of were a mixture of prophet and king. They would rule, but they also were speaking on behalf of God uh, in the midst of that. So then the fourth definition, the fourth person we have to understand are the kings. These came in after the judges. They ruled more the the government and the political aspect of Israel. They were the king. They were the ruler. And if you remember, God did not want to give them a king. The people whined and whined and whined and begged and begged and begged because they wanted a king like who? All the other nations around them. We want to be ruled like they are ruled. Which basically is telling God what? Shove off. We don't want you. We want some man that we can follow. We don't want you. And he said, okay, but here's what's going to happen. I'll give you the king, but he's going to take your sons and make them work for him in the army. He's going to take so much of your crops and your livestock, and he's going to get fat and wealthy, and you're going to be poor. But I'll give you one if you want it. Yes, we want it. And so they went out, and they made Saul king. And sure enough, Saul got rich and took their kids and... Off they went. And so the the kings ruled politically. Um, and the first king was Saul. And then who came after Saul? David. And then who came after David? Solomon. And then who ruled Israel after Solomon? His son. <laughs> Rehoboam. Actually, it was at that point that the kingdom became divided. That there was now Israel and Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom. Judah, the southern kingdom. And now each would have a king. And so as you read through Judges, as you read through First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second King, Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll begin to see that there is a king of Israel and a king of Judah. So it's a divided now, the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob became renamed Israel, the nation of Israel is now a divided kingdom, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, And so there was much turmoil between the two kingdoms as well. um, As each one wrestled with following God, not following God. And uh, they would follow the local gods uh, and, and worship them. Uh, that were introduced, a lot of them would worship God and the local gods just to kind of cover all their bases. Um, So, you know, I'm going to go to the Baptist church and the Methodist church and the Alliance church. I'll try to hit them all just to cover myself and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and so Israel was a mess at this point. Uh, And all along from, from the Kings on, God then instituted these prophets. He would bring prophets in to to kind of help guide the king if the king was willing to listen. Uh, And the prophet would would lead spiritually while the king was leading politically. Uh, and, And many times, if the king was following after God, he would work very closely with the prophet, um, which some of them did, as you can read through. Um, But what we want to talk about now for the next few weeks are the prophets, these prophets, these spokesmen for God. And in the Bible, there are two classifications of prophets. There are major prophets and there are minor prophets. Now, anyone want to guess why they're called major and why they're called minor? Huh? Major are a lot longer. That's the only difference. The major prophets are longer. You have Isaac or uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Daniel is kind of that buffer between the two. He's not as long as the others, but he's longer than the minor prophets. So Daniel kind of falls into the major prophets as well. And then you have all of the minor prophets that come after uh, the book of Daniel. Now I have, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, I mean in our English Bible, each prophet has its own book. 
in the Hebrew Bible, they compiled all 12 of them together into one, basically because they put them on scrolls. And so there was one scroll that had all of the minor prophets on it, and they were referred to as the 12. Uh, and so in a Hebrew Bible, it's just the 12, and then it was all the writings of the minor prophets. In our Bible, we have each one listed separately. I've given you kind of a timeline chart of the prophets, uh, and you'll see that uh, they are scattered out over about four or five hundred years uh, and uh, divided between, because some prophets would speak just to Judah, some prophets would, would be called by God to speak to Israel after the kingdom was divided. And so in the ninth century, very early on, you see that Obadiah and Joel uh, spoke to Judah. And then in the 8th century, Israel had Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, and uh, Judah had Micah and Isaiah. So those guys were kind of contemporaries. They all kind of probably bumped into each other. So there wasn't like one prophet of the day. There were many prophets throughout, uh, or different prophets at the same time serving. It was in 722 B.C. that Israel was taken into captivity. Okay, so Israel's done. They are uh, taken as slaves by Assyria. Judah is still functioning. Judah is still a nation that's going on. And so you have Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah in the 7th and 6th centuries. And then in 586 B.C., Babylon comes in and takes Judah captive. And, uh, and then during the exile, you have Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, are actually spokesmen for God, during that 70 years of, of exile. And then afterwards, as they went back, as Israel regained their freedom and were led back to the promised land uh, after captivity by Babylon, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi uh, were the prophets after. Um, now, we're not going to look at those last three um, just because we don't have the weeks or the time in order to do it. So because those three are after uh, I decided those are the ones we would chop off and not, not cover uh, at this time. So we're going to look at those others. We're going to look at Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk uh, is who we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, looking at. Any questions, comments, great ideas? Uh, they might have known of them, but they, but Obadiah and Joel spoke specifically to the nation of Judah. Yes, Daniel and Ezekiel would have spoke to both Israel and Judah because at that point they're, they, and, and when they come back out of exile, they're just one. It's no longer the divided kingdom. Good question. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's dive into Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah, turn, take your Bibles and turn to Obadiah. We're going to end up reading most of his writing because it's just one chapter. It's 17, 21 verses. And uh, kind of just give a little background. The man Obadiah, we're not real certain who he is. Uh, that's another thing about the prophets, even though they have written and spoken of God, we on this side don't necessarily know a lot of background about them because they tended to not write about themselves when they wrote. Um, and because of, of what was going on at the time, other people didn't, weren't necessarily writing about the prophets either. Uh, and so Obadiah, we don't know a lot about him. His name means servant of the Lord. That we know. Um, he did live in Judah uh, because he spoke to Judah. So we're assuming that he lived in Judah because usually if he lived in Israel, he would not have come and spoken at Judah because there was even fighting amongst those two and they didn't get along. So having an Israelite come in and speak to Judah would not have gone over well at all. Um, and so we're assuming that he lived in, in Judah. 1 Kings 18.3 talks about a man, says, Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab, who was one of the kings, not a good king, had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord, 
While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. That may have been the Obadiah who wrote this, who, who then became uh, a prophet. Um, we don't know. There were 12 different uh, or 13 different Obadiahs throughout the Old Testament. One of them would have been this prophet. Um, because of the time that we're placing the book, uh, he very well could have been the one who served uh, as the palace administrator under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, which would not have been a job I would have wanted uh, to be the chief administrator for those two, um, especially if you're a devout believer of the Lord. Um, if you as a believer... Uh, go into your workplace every day and you're working for a non-believer, you have nothing over this Obadiah. Uh, Because I about guarantee you, you don't work for Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, They were staunch against God uh, to the point of killing the prophets. Uh, That's what they were trying to do because the prophets were speaking out against them. And what they were doing, the policies they were setting, the way in which they were ruling, the prophets were speaking very adamantly against them, and so they were just killing the prophets. Uh, And here Obadiah sneaks a hundred of them out uh, in order to save them. Uh, And so Obadiah uh, really risked his own life beyond just his job. He risked his own life uh, to save them. So whether it was through that that God then called him, Uh, To be a prophet, we don't know. Um, And with the father not being mentioned, a lot of times if you read in Scripture, it'll mention, uh, well, we find out with Joel, it says Joel, the son of uh, Pethuel. Many times it will list who the father is because that was their way of knowing who a person was. Um, Even in the New Testament, you got that. Um, It was Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, uh, you have uh, Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, they, they would refer to them as who their father was. The fact that we have Obadiah and it says nothing about who his father was means he may not have had uh, much of a heritage, uh, definitely not priestly or kingly. Uh, and there may have been you know, no really true bloodline that, that anyone paid much attention to with him uh, in that. So we don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, other than he is the Obadiah and he's from Judah. Um, the date of the writing, we've placed it in the ninth century, but again, we don't know that uh, for sure either. Um, it's, it's either. It was either in 845 B.C. or around 850 B.C. or around 600 B.C. They're not sure exactly because a lot of what he talks about uh, as far as uh, the devastation that was happening to Israel happened at both of those times. Uh, or to Judah was happening at both of those times. Uh, And so they're not real sure of the date. The message, though, we are sure of. And oddly enough, the first prophet that we're looking at did not even speak to Israel or Judah. His message was directed to Edom. Now, who is Edom? Edom is the descendants of Esau. Who's Esau? Jacob's brother. Um, Jacob and Esau were brothers. And and so Jacob and Esau, if you remember that story, we'll go back uh, to Genesis. And Jacob was the second born. Esau was the first born. They were twins, but Esau came out first. And so that made him, that he had the birthright. He basically was going to have the keys to the kingdom when dad passed away. Um, Jacob wanted that. Jacob wanted to be, have the birthright. If you remember, Esau was the hunter. He was rough. He was big. He was hairy. Um, he was red. That's what Edom means, red. And so he was a, he was a rough and tumble guy. And Jacob was much more of a, at home. Uh, he didn't go out and do the hunts. He didn't, you know, he was much more the domestic type of guy. And uh, his, he and his mom came up with a plan that they would trick uh, them to where he could get the birthright. So Esau came in and he basically tricked Esau into giving him his birthright. He, 
he had made a uh, bowl of soup, a pot of soup, stew. And when Esau came in from the hunt empty-handed, he said, boy, this tastes good. Wouldn't this be great if you had some of this? Give me your birthright. I'll give you a cup. Esau didn't care about the birthright. He didn't care whether he got the keys to the kingdom or not. And so he sold him his birthright for basically a cup of soup. And that gave Jacob then, was then going to be treated as the firstborn. Right, right. Had Jacob waited and trusted God, he'd have gotten it anyhow. God was choosing to go through uh, Jacob, but he didn't want to wait on God. So he deceived his brother and got it. Well, surprise, surprise, that caused animosity between the two. Uh, Because then after Esau got his belly full, he kind of wished he hadn't done that. And uh, so then there was infighting between the brothers um, all the way along. A lot of conflict between Israel and the Edomites, uh, Esau. Um, In Genesis chapter 36, I have the verse there, their possessions were too great for them to remain together. And the land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. Now the hill country of Seir, I've given you just a little map there. If you can see Israel and the Sea of Galilee, um, just straight south of that, uh, between the Sea of Galilee and the Red Sea, the Red Sea is not on there, um, is where Edom was. That's, that's where the, the, the mountains of Seir were. And that's where Edom settled. So what really is today Jordan and, okay, now you understand the fighting between Israel and Jordan and who gets to control what and that's mine and no, it's not mine, that's ours. Well, that started with Jacob and Esau over a bowl of soup. Uh, Everything that's going on in that area of the world right now is over a bowl of soup. That's what started it. Um, Everyone claims it's their land. Uh, because of the birthright, and it's not. God has, has given it to Jacob. Um, and so w- it's now modern-day Jordan and probably even part of northern Saudi Arabia uh, is where the Edomites settled, uh, where Esau took his, his clan. So Edom, <coughs> uh, this is who uh, Obadiah is talking to. This is who Obadiah is directing his words to. So this prophecy that we have in Obadiah, these 21 verses, is given to Edom. It's given to Jacob's brother Esau and his descendants. Um, It's a two-part message. The first one talks about the coming destruction of Edom. And the second part talks about uh, the coming day of the Lord. And uh, so he's talking about this destruction, but then he's going to shoot farther down and talk about the return of Christ the day of the Lord. So uh, a lot of times you'll have prophets that do that. You'll see that prophets have kind of a dual uh, fulfillment, that what they're saying is going to be fulfilled here, but then it's also pointing to a time way down the line where it will also be fulfilled. Um, And so this is what Obadiah is doing. He's talking uh, very plainly here in this first 14 verses uh, about the coming destruction of Edom. And there's two reasons that God is going to judge Edom. The first one is because of their pride. Look at verses, well, we'll just start reading in in verse 1. Obadiah, verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Again, we've got that, thus saith the Lord. That's how a prophet spoke. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise and let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. This is Esau that they're taught, his descendants, Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring, down, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And so Edom had, had gotten very prideful. And God was about to bring judgment upon them because of their pride. Now, Edom had reasons, human reasons, to be prideful. Uh, Where they settled in Mount Seir was a mighty fortress. I mean, they had built a huge fortress. 
in the rocks, as it says, you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks. They weren't living in caves. Uh, this was just on these mountains. There were, there were some, uh, I think they said it was red sandstone cliffs, some that would be like 5,000 feet up. And so armies weren't going to come in and overthrow you because they're not climbing 5,000 feet through red sandstone to get to where you are. And so they were sitting high. They were sitting pretty. They thought they were all it. They were powerful, um, living in the hill country. They were easily protected. And they began to think that there was nothing that could bad that could happen to them. They also were located, being between the Red Sea and the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea and everything else out east of them, they were in a prime location for trade routes. And so they had a lot of trade going on. And their people got very wealthy. Uh, And uh, the city of Petra, maybe you've heard of the city of Petra, is, uh, is in Edom. That was their main city. Uh, and very wealthy city. And so they, they exuded pride. And God says, I will not deal. I'm going to deal with it. And so the message that we have today from Obadiah is one, God will judge. I mean, verses four, and, four through six, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Yeah, men are not going to bring you down. There's not an army in the world that's going to be able to climb up there and bring you down. Man can't do it, but God says, I will do it. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Now here what God is saying is that he says, you know what, you have all this wealth. You have all of these things, nice things. Apparently they grew grapes in that area too. And it said, even if thieves came in, they would not be able to carry away everything you own. If, If grape pickers came in and stole your grapes, they would not be able to carry everything out. They would leave something because you have so much. But God says, I'm coming in and wiping it all out. I'm not leaving anything. Complete desolation of Esau because of their pride. He says, I am taking you out because of your pride. Now, we got to understand that God's going to bring them down for their pride. And so we have to be very careful of our own national pride. We are the United States of America. No one can. Okay, God can. God can wipe us out at any moment if we decide to become prideful and stop following him. That's the lesson Obadiah wants us to learn. It was a lesson spoken to Edom, but we need to learn it. We need to understand it. We need to hear that pride cometh before the fall and that God doesn't put up with prideful nations. And so we, he said, if my people will humble themselves. Okay, so, so we have to learn humility. Philippians chapter 3, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have to understand as the United States, we are not God's chosen people. We're not. Israel is still God's chosen, still God's chosen nation, still the nation he's going to work in, work through. We are not it. But many times we think we are or we act like we are, that, that we are God's gift to the world. Folks, that's pride. That's national pride. We're not even mentioned. If you go through and read Daniel and and Revelation, and you look at end times, and you study end times, and the nations that are going to be involved, the United States doesn't come up. We're not a part of that. Uh, It doesn't say the great nation from the west, or the great, it's not there. They talk about coming in from the east and coming down from the north, uh, and that's about it. And so I don't know where the United States plays out in that. 
final battle, in that final revelation. But we have to be very careful that we don't exude pride as a nation. Because we have to remember, yes, I am a physical human citizen of the United States. But my citizenship is in heaven. And that is first and foremost, that I'm a follower of God, that I'm a citizen of his before I'm a citizen of the United States. And so if we put the nation before God, we're in trouble. And if we put the God before the nation, then God's going to do what God's going to do. And we need to be good citizens, first of heaven, then of the United States. Uh, and so Edom didn't get that. Edom was very prideful in what they had accomplished. No one could come in and overthrow them. Sure, thieves come in, plunder, a few grapes here and there, gone. But God says, I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to deal with your national pride. Um, God opposes the pride but shows favor to the humble. The second message or the second uh, reason that God was coming in, not just pride, but Edom also had a problem in that they found joy in the downfall of Israel. Remember Jacob, Esau, we said. So when Jacob had trouble, when nations would come in and wipe Jacob out, Esau would laugh. Esau would get all excited about it. Edom rejoiced when something bad happened to Judah or something bad happened to Israel. And uh, in verse 10, verses 10 through 12, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. See, every time something bad happened to Judah, Edom liked it. Edom would, would throw celebrations because they're finally getting theirs. And God says, no, that's my chosen people. And so uh, we can't take, take joy in other people's downfall. Psalm 137.7 says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. So our message today from this, not only pride in that we need to humble ourselves as citizens of God first and as, as a nation, but we need to, to understand that we need to deal with everyone in grace. That grace has to be the first thing we extend. We want to sometimes uh, relish in someone's bad uh, or someone's misfortune because maybe they don't believe as us. Finally, they're getting what has they have coming to them. Uh, but God's saying, you know what? Edom did that to, to Judah, and that's not a good thing. We need to, to reach out with, with grace. And even as, as we look, and we don't know what's going to happen with with our country. We don't know what's going to, what the future holds. Um, you know, we have some ideas as if this person gets elected, we're in trouble. If this person gets elected, we're in less trouble. Um, it's kind of how I look at it. <laughs> I think we're in trouble no matter what. Uh, but do we respond with grace? Because ultimately our citizenship is where? Heaven. That's where we're going to end up irregardless of what happens to the United States, irregardless of what happens to Canada, irregardless of what happens to Europe, all the nations there, our final destination is heaven. And that's who we are loyal to first. And so we have to, with all of those around us, reach out and respond in grace. Edom did not show grace. Edom did not show kindness to Israel. Uh, when, when Moses, uh, when they, he led the people out of uh, Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they kind of wandered down, they got Mount Sinai and they got the Ten Commandments and then they're heading up to the Promised Land. They got to the north part, the very north part of the Red Sea and they wanted to cross over because it would be easier to cross through Edom to get to Canaan than it would be to go the other way uh, through the Philistines and all of that, Edom would not allow them to pass. They said, no, you're not welcome here, and made them 
go out, go around. They faced all kinds of trouble going that way. And God's saying, look, I'm going to do it again. I am going to judge you for your inability to show grace and kindness to those that don't agree with you, uh, to those that, that are outside. And so we have to live according to grace. We have to treat those that we come in contact with with grace because we are first a citizen of, of heaven and then a citizen of, of this nation. So he talks about the, the destruction that's coming upon Edom. He also then talks about the coming day of the Lord. And this is why I combine Joel with tonight because Joel also talks about the coming day of the Lord. So let's just flip over to Joel real fast, and they're not in order. Um, Joel is a few back. Uh, I'm sorry, a few forward. Go back towards the front of the Bible. Um, back towards the front. It's kind of like back to the future type thing. To Joel. Uh, Joel, again, just real quickly. Uh, who he is. This here we do see that Joel, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Uh, oddly enough, we don't know anything about Pethuel either. Um, and so knowing that Joel is his son doesn't really help us much. Um, Joel means Yahweh is God. Joel. El is the God. Um, so Joel means, uh, Joel means Yahweh is God. He likely lived in the southern kingdom of Judah because much of the book deals with Jerusalem. Uh, some feel he may have also been a priest because he has he speaks a lot of, uh, of kind of a, a very familiar knowledge with the temple and what went on in the temple. Um, so he may have been a priest or at least a servant of a priest uh, at that time. Like Obadiah, we do not know the date that uh, Joel was written in. Uh, but because of some of the, the happenings that are going on in the book, they believe he was early in the divided kingdom and was a contemporary of Obadiah uh, because of the evidence. Um, the theme is the day of the Lord. The theme that, that Joel is speaking on is the day of the Lord. Here the, the prophet writes in response to a locust attack uh, to drought and to fires that hit Judah. So there's uh, again, God uses this, this locust, uh, swarm of locusts. And if you're a, a farming society, the locust is your worst enemy. Because locusts, the little grasshoppers, would come in in swarms. I mean, like clouds of locusts, hundreds of thousands of locusts. And they would just devour crops in a matter of days. The entire fields would just be decimated and there would be no harvest in that. And so when you mix the locusts coming through with a drought, so you don't even have the ability to replant uh, anything, what the locusts didn't get, the drought did. Um, and Joel is coming and saying, look, Judah, this is coming because of God. This is a, this is a sign, this is a judgment that's coming to you because of God. Um, and so all of chapter 1 talks about the locusts. Uh, talks about the, the need for repentance. Chapter 2 is where we want to talk about this, this idea of the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Again, this is kind of the, the precursor was the locusts and the drought and the fires that came. And now Joel is saying there's an army coming like them uh, to bring about judgment upon Judah. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops, like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. The sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from either course, from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. 
They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened. The stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Again, prophecy sometimes talks about a very close future event. Sometimes it shoots down farther. This is one of those times where it's talking about there will come a nation that's going to, that God is going to use to judge Judah. And it's going to come in like a mighty army, like a, like a swarm of locusts, like the drought, like the fires, and consume everything that is there. Um, but yet he also is speaking towards the, uh, the future day of the Lord that we refer to as the second coming of Christ. Yes, six hours a swarm of locusts would completely devour an entire field. Um, that's how quick they work. That's how that's how devastating they are, and uh, and so you know of course Obadiah is living in a time where there were no pesticides. There were you know and it just was complete uh, decimation. So uh, this day is coming. He says you've already experienced the locusts and the drought. Well now there's an army that's going to come and and finish us off the way our crops were finished off. Um, and so the beautiful thing is that God warns them that it's coming, and then he gives them an option in, in chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? See, in the midst of this, God is offering them a chance to repent. It's a warning, and the, and the prophets did that. The prophets would come and speak this warning that this is going to happen, but God is gracious, that if we repent, God is patient with us, and, and he continues to send warnings. Um, and events for people to wake up. Interesting, he still does that today. Um, he still uses national events to pull people together. Um, after 9-11, okay, September 11th with the, the dropping of the towers when they, when they were hit and, and fell, um, church attendance soared for about three months. And then everyone got comfortable again. You see, that was an opportunity that, that, that God used. I'm not saying God planned that. I'm not saying it was a judgment of God. I'm not a prophet. I don't know. I can't in that area say, thus saith the Lord. But God could use that to wake people up to the reality that there is a day coming when there will be judgment. When, when God will look down. And so he calls for repentance. And, we, and the, the fact that we have a God that, that will warn and offer repentance says what a loving God that is because he wouldn't have to do that. He has every right to just send the locusts in, send the army in behind and wipe it all out. But he offers repentance. And so Joel is coming to, to Judah and saying, look, you, you've, got, you've got to turn around here. There's a day coming, and God is offering you to come back to the temple to offer the sacrifices and the offerings again, to receive the blessing of God rather than the judgment and the wrath of God. 
And so then in, in verse 28, Joel now shoots way forward into what we refer to and in, in Obadiah also talked to as the ultimate day of the Lord. He says in verse 28, And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now he's talking there that he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit on anyone who believes, men and women, young and old. We've already experienced that. We're past that. That was Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And now we are living in that time of, of great warning, of opportunity to warn that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And when that dreadful day comes, now for the believer, it's not a dreadful day. Dreadful in the sense that there's going to be a lot of uh, calamity. There's going to be a lot of destruction when Christ returns, that, that he is going to judge the world. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth as people are, are cast into hell for all eternity. That's the dreadful part. But God is saying you can escape all that. And, and I've sent you this warning that that's going to be, and I, I think I've given you three uh, God's going to act on Israel's behalf, but he, and he will save his church, that that's going to be a day of judgment. Look at verse, chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. This is what's going to happen uh, on that dreadful day. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle from the harvest, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. That there is a day of judgment coming, that that, that sickle is going to swing and, and begin cutting down and cutting out the evil in the world. And judgment is coming. Uh, they're going to stomp out the grapes. They're going to stomp out. And all of that is, is the idea of, of uh, God and his army judging the nations that no longer follow him, the people that no longer follow him. But also it's a day of salvation. Verse 17. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of, of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert, a, a desert place because of violence done to the people of Judah in whose land they shed innocent blood. So there is a day of salvation. In the midst of this horrible judgment, believers have a day of salvation. That there will be plenty of new wine. There will be plenty of water. The, flow, the hills will flow with milk. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of goodness that God is going to bring. And then the third thing is it's a day of separation. That's when he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The wheat from the tares. Okay? And so in all of this, this is going to be that day that, that is coming. And we have to hear that. We have to hear Obadiah and Joel both say, that day is coming. And we have to live in light of that day. Not so much in light of what is happening right here and right now, knowing that it all is leading to that day. When we will experience complete salvation. You know, Paul says, you know, continue to work out your salvation, to continue to live out until that day comes and it will be complete, that we will then be, uh, meet Jesus in the air, that we will be given the, the resurrected bodies, that we will have the, you know, Revelation 20 and 21, no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, uh, that the new Jerusalem, the, the new heaven, the new earth 
uh, will come down. That's the day we long for. That's the day that we want to see. That is the day that is coming. Um, and so we have to live today in light of that day. As citizens of God, as warnings that we will all, he says, uh, they will all prophesy. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. All of us need to be able to speak, need to be speaking on behalf of God to people who don't know him. I mean, this is a call to evangelism as well for, for today, that, that we need to warn people uh, that this day is coming. And so Obadiah and Joel are both very similar as, as they speak to us, the church, that we know this day is coming, that we have to live, as Denny said this morning, holy lives, separate lives, that we are the righteous, we are the sheep, and we need to be living separate from the world, not isolated from the world, but we live by a different standard. We live by a different moral compass. Uh, Bill, Bill calls it with the uh, youth group a God grid. Everything has to pass through the God grid. That, that as, we, as our thoughts and our, our ideas are coming, is this a thing of God or not? If it's a thing not of God, then we need to cast it aside because it will be destroyed. It will be burnt up. And we need to live for the things that are of God and, and, and busy ourselves with the things of God. Um, you know, we talk about our, our mission statement. I'm not going to quiz you on it because the last three times I quizzed the congregation on Sunday morning, we failed miserably in knowing what, what we as a church are about. But we are transformed by faith, growing in wisdom, intentional in relationships and service. That's what we say we as a church are about. We are a people that are transformed by faith. That means that, that we are believing the right things. That means that when we put things through the God grid, when we hear things, we can determine, thus saith the Lord, or thus not saith the Lord. And thus saith the Lord transforms us. It changes us. The way we think, the way we act, the way we feel, the way we interact with people. We are transformed. We're growing in wisdom. We say those are the spiritual disciplines. It's the way we live out our life. Uh, Joel, I think it was Joel that said uh, mourning and fasting, that, that part of this repentance is, is the spiritual discipline of fasting, that there are times that we need to have fasting as part of our lifestyle, our normal way of doing life, because there are some things that, that we can only hear from God or know from God through fasting. I'm not very good at fasting. I like to eat. But we need to. We need to be incorporating that into, especially as that day approaches. Because as bad as we think things are now, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. It's going to be harder and harder and harder to be a Christian. To be a faithful follower of God. And so we better be transformed. We better be growing. And then as... as as Joel and Obadiah, both Joel especially, says we need to be intentional in those relationships because we've got people we need to warn. We've got people that we need to live it out in front of. Um, calling people to repentance. Not calling them to church. Calling them to repentance. Because it's only repentance that makes a difference. As Denny said this morning, church attendance doesn't transform you. But repentance does. Because then the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to do his work and changes us. So Obadiah and Joel, very much prophets from a long time ago, but their message speaks today. Very much is, is relevant to where we are living our life as a nation. That, that we need to uh, watch the pride. Pride cometh before the fall. That we need to repent National sins, we need to repent. And then we have a message that we need to take to those around us. Because that day of the Lord, the dreadful day, is approaching. It is coming. Let me pray. 
Father, we are thankful that you, your word is truth, that you have given it to us, that, Father, things that were spoken thousands of years ago are relevant today, that it still holds a message for us. Father, I pray that you would make us worthy of this call. Uh, your Bible tells us, your word tells us that we are ambassadors of Christ, that, that we are ambassadors in this nation, ambassadors of our heavenly nation, that we are citizens of heaven and therefore ambassadors of Christ everywhere we go. Father, would you give us uh, the words to say? Would you help us to be intentional in those people that are, that are around us, that we would reach out to them in grace and mercy? And Father, not with pride, but with humility, share with them, thus saith the Lord, your words, your truth. That, Father, they might be prepared when that day comes. And Lord, as your believers, we look forward to that day. We long for that day when, when all the wrongs will be made right. And things will be set back on the right course where you are seated on the throne and it is your rule, your reign. Father, until that day comes, give us diligence, give us strength, give us courage, give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen.